Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for Security Now is provided by AOL Music and Spinner.com, where you can get free MP3s, exclusive interviews, and more. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 207 for July 30th, 2009. Listener feedback number 71. Security Now is brought to you by Go to Assist Express, an easy way to provide instant tech support to your customers, clients, family, or friends. Be a tech support hero with Go to Assist. For a free 30-day trial, go to gotoassist.com/security. It's time for Security Now, the show that covers all things security. Steve Gibson is here of GRC.com, our security guru, the man who discovered spyware, coined the term spyware, writes all those great security tools, and uh, of course is the creator of SpinWrite, a fantastic hard drive maintenance utility that is a must-have. Hey, Steve, a good day. Hey, Leo. Great to be with you again. Episode 207. Yes. This is the one before the last one of our fourth year. Our penultimate episode of the third year. What? No. <laughs> no. We're nearing the end of the fourth year. Yeah. So, so a penultimate episode of the fourth year. Yes. Wow. Yes. Holy camoly. Yeah. Wow, that's great. Well, congratulations on, on four years. I hear, uh, as I'm going through the mailbag, as I did for today's Q&A, um, so many people appreciate the fact that the uh, we're turning these out as reliably as we are. As we are, I mean, they absolutely they know we will go through any uh, means necessary so that there's always a security now new security now episode every week. And so far, <laughs> we got a, we're batting a thousand. <laughs> and credit to you because it certainly isn't me. <laughs> I miss episodes of shows all the time. <laughs> no big deal. But today we've got a good one. We've got uh, we're going to catch up because last week where we normally do Q and A we didn't. So we've got a bunch of questions and answers. We and a bunch of errata. Really, just a whole bunch of interesting stuff. I know that our listeners are going to get a kick out of. Well, let's uh, let's get underway. What's... Plow right in. Well, first of all, you had news about the iPhone texting exploit that we talked about last week. Yes, indeed. You know, this is uh, they call him Safari Charlie. Charlie Miller is, uh, is has made his uh, name. Cracking OS 10 twice now. He's won laptops in the Pwn to Own competition by finding exploits nobody knew about in OS 10, and certainly that weren't patched. So he claims he's found and will reveal on Thursday. So as you hear this, he may even be revealing it right now. Turn off your phone. <laughs> the Black Hat Conference, a technique. Yeah, eventually, essentially, and you know, one question that we had last week is, you know, he had said originally it affects 2.2.1. He didn't say exactly that it affects the latest version 3.0 but he did say it affects all iphones which tells me it does in fact uh affect all iphones he can send out a series of invisible sms messages in his hack ending with a one that has a single square character and uh, at that point he has absolute control of your phone he can make phone calls he can make money by sending uh, text messages to premium uh, services, which you'll then get in your bill. He, he can, can turn on the camera or the microphone. He's got complete control. See where the phone is. He he can read out your GPS to find out where the phone is located. 
And the real scary thing is that uh, no word from Apple on a patch. No. Uh, they don't they don't have a whole lot of time left. Um, you know, so Apple, please. Uh, and and, and, and one of the things Charlie says, if you get a text message with a square in it, turn off your phone right now. That's the only uh, fix. He says somebody could pretty quickly take over every iPhone in the world with this patch. The other point that he made, which is kind of sad, is that he has told Apple about this a long time ago. Mm-hmm. He says, I've given them more time to patch this than I've ever given a company to patch a bug. Uh, so, um, Well, and also the fact that they did the V3 rollout, knowing that this was a problem and didn't fix it for version 3. It's very scary, very frustrating. Yeah. And um, so what's the status on pushing versus pulling these patches? You know, I didn't, we, I didn't find out. Uh, the, I've never had a pushed patch. It's always right. been pulled. So that means you have to go to iTunes. Yeah, you have to go to iTunes and sync, and iTunes will say there's a patch, and then you have to accept it. And you have to install it. You're... Well, so what, what, what we can do for our iPhone using listeners is just put them on alert that this that there's big news happening Thursday. It's not clear um, whether there will be clear details about how to exploit this. That is to say, it's not as if when when this is revealed, suddenly there will be exploits. But enough has leaked out already that that other people have good clues about where this problem lies so you know again be on alert for updates from apple and and apply this asap incidentally at the same talk they're going to re- reveal a vulnerability in windows mobile's S- window mobile sms so uh he, th- it sounds like sms is a vector for attack of, and and not because it's such an old technology not very well defended in any platform. Well, it's hard to excuse it, really. I mean, I would say it's a simple technology. I mean, it's just text records of 160 characters maximum. I mean, it's trivial. And so, it, I mean, but the vulnerability is what it always is, which is you've got a communications buffer, which is receiving data. And obviously, there's parsing problems with, you know, displaying characters and fonts or, you know, who knows what the boundary conditions are that are being exercised. But you have a device that's connected to the Internet, or in this case, the, phone, the, the telephone system, and it's able to receive something from somebody else that is able to, that, that's able to exploit, um, you know, defects in the reception code. He so. discovered the uh, Windows Mobile flaw on Monday, so <laughs> it's not like Microsoft's had any time to respond to that one. I don't, it doesn't sound no. as as serious either. So that's scary. Well, we do have an interesting out of cycle update from Microsoft. By the time our listeners hear this on really? Thursday, the the Tuesday update, which is the fourth Tuesday of the month. We normally have Microsoft patches, as I'm sure all of our listeners know, on the second Tuesday of the month. And I made the comment last week that that due to the fact that the month began on Wednesday, this was the latest second Tuesday of the month possible. Now we're at the fourth Tuesday of the month, and Microsoft has just released um, two, two critical patches um, essentially what, and then this is some, this is the first time we've, we've run across this. There's a patch to internet Explorer, but almost more significantly is a patch to the visual studio tool oh, set, yeah. which is used for creating active X controls. What happened is for, it turns out for quite a while, 
there has been a bug in, in the so-called Active Template Library, ATL, which is one of the toolkits used in Visual Studio for producing ActiveX controls, which in turn are invocable by Internet Explorer. The flaw in ATL, the Active Template Library, allows for kill bits to be ignored in ActiveX controls. We've talked about kill bits often because, you know, this is the, the, the bit um, which can be set, which prevents an ActiveX control from being invoked by Internet Explorer. I was lamenting last week that Microsoft didn't default them to being disabled and then explicitly enabled when you knew that it was a control that should be, that made sense to be invocable by Internet Explorer. Instead, dumbly, I mean, from a security standpoint, um, Microsoft has them all enabled by default, and so you kill them individually if you, once you discover that they can be exploited. I mean, it's just completely backwards. Um, but what's worse is that the... The toolkit from Microsoft has a flaw, meaning that all ActiveX controls that anyone has ever written using this flawed library contains the flaw, which now people have found a way to exploit, meaning that it's a way after you turn on the kill bit saying, whoops, we found a vulnerability in this control Use the kill bit to prevent Internet Explorer from being able to invoke it, meaning that a website you visit is able to exploit you um, through that, that, that channel. Now there's a way to ignore the kill bit because of the flaw in the active template libraries. Wow. So, so these two updates, uh, um, MS09-034 and 035, got added, technically added to the second Tuesday of the month updates. I think they went from like 21 through 33 or, or something through 33. Now they've added 34 and 35. So they're doing it as an update to um, this month's patch batch. Um, the first one is an update to IE that you definitely want to do because what that does is that prevents this flaw in the ATL from being exploited. So by fixing Internet Explorer, what they've done is they've updated IE so that it it renders these bugs um, non-problematical, even when you've got ActiveX controls that were built with the flawed ATL, the Active Template Library, and 035 fixes the Active Template Library to remove the problem, even though Internet Explorer, once patched, will no longer allow that problem to be exploited. So, um, you know, I, I'm seeing a little yellow shield down in my tray, which has been there for uh, a day or two. Um, I've not yet installed these because I'm not using IE for anything other than <laughs> other than getting itself patched. So basically, that's sort of strange. You use your browser only to patch itself. <laughs> Well, in other parts of Windows. <laughs> but that's what I'm doing. So uh, I imagine that our listeners will have seen that um, reboot may be necessary after installing this. So, you know, find a time to do it, but uh, but do it because it will it'll help keep you safe on the net. Um, and Microsoft has that new weird exploitability index indicator, and they're calling this 
exploit code likely functional code execution wow. is easy and reliable to create oh, so it's nice of them to tell us yeah just, <laughs> it's just easy you know, you're it's probably reliable gonna, probably going to be a good thing to patch <laughs> Jeez. Easy yeah. and reliable. That's something that Microsoft might want to shoot for. Easy and reliable. Wouldn't it be nice if it was just easy and reliable to use Windows instead of rating the malware as easy oh and reliable goodness. to create? I think they're going to change that pretty quick. Yeah. I don't think that's that language is right. That's literally the verbiage yeah, on their, on no, their security page. That, I think. Um, also, I just wanted to note that Windows 7 was RTM, was released to manufacturing. Yes. Um, the final release candidate is still available for free download, and you can get a key. Um, you won't it, get the RTM version, though. No, you, they're, they're yeah. not making the RTM version available except to their so-called partners, you know, people like Dell and HP and so right. forth, who need to have it in order to begin making sure that, you know, they're, they're going to be integrating it into their, in, into their product flow. Um, end users, though, I wanted to, to mention, can get the release candidate, which is free and a security key. Um, we're expecting Windows 7 to be released in October. But for me, at least, we know I'll be waiting until October of 2010 because much as it is nice, it's new and new means bad. So, you know, uh, I, I know that there are people who are jumping on it. Lots of people are excited. Um but uh, even so, it's not something I'm going to be jumping on because we'll wait for it to settle down. Um, so uh, Adobe is back in trouble once again um, in a couple ways. There is a critical vulnerability in, and this is unpatched, a critical vulnerability in the current versions of Flash Player version 9, uh, which, well, yeah, Flash Player version 9 and version 10 for Windows, Mac, and Linux operating systems. There's a, a vulnerable DLL. It's the authplay.dll component, which is in Reader and Acrobat uh, for Windows, Macintosh, and Unix. Um, it's, uh, it, it definitely can be caught, used to cause a crash and potentially allows a, an attacker to take control of affected systems there are no patches available. Adobe has said they're going to try to get something out by this week, like by the end of this week. So the like the end of July ish. Um, so um, keep an eye on on Reader and Flash and Acrobat for updates. Maybe you know have it checked. Um, Adobe also came under some fire for for the downloadable most recent version of their reader not being the patched one. That is, they're, 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 it turns out they have an official protocol for the single dot versions to be available for download. But the two dot versions, for example, 9.0 or 9.1 will be, will, will be what you can download. But if there's a 9.1.1 or 9.1.2, as is the case now, where there are vulnerabilities fixed in the two dot, what you're downloading is still 9.1, and you must then update its security after downloading it. They're not making the fixed one the one that you download. And so they're, they're under some heat for that. I wouldn't be surprised if they changed that policy since, you know, it, it means that you then need to wait for the player to update. Mm -hmm. I think probably all of our listeners are security conscious enough that 
when they install something like this, they immediately go under the help menu and check for updates and they'll find, oh, look, there are some from the thing I just freshly downloaded. But the security community is upset that Adobe by policy is making a known vulnerable version downloadable from their site. It should check immediately and update immediately, automatically. Yes, and it doesn't. Yeah, that's just weird. Also, in security news, Network Solutions, you probably heard, Leo, had a massive credit card breach. Mm. Um, more than half a million uh, debit and credit card accounts. Uh, by, by their count, 573,000 credit and debit card accounts over a three-month period from about the middle of March, March 12th through the beginning of June, um, were exposed. Uh, it was uh, Network Solutions found malware on the e-commerce hosting servers. Inexcusable. I know. That 4,343 hosted customers uh. are using for their merchant and e-commerce websites. These are typically, you know, your smaller mom-and-pop stores where it's just like, oh, yeah, set me up with e-commerce, you know, one-click e-commerce, and I'll pay my monthly fee, and that'll give me a shopping cart, and I can sell things. Well, unfortunately, malware has been there for three months recording every credit card transaction, which um, these 4,343 customers have have um, transacted. Um, obviously, this has been fixed now. Part of uh, there, there's There's no clear um widespread agreement on on the the from from a legal standpoint on the reporting of this kind of breach i think about 43 states have some legislation which requires in the event of a breach like this that the people who are potential targets all be notified so network solutions has said on behalf of their 4343 customers of you know their hosting customers that they will take responsibility for notifying all of these five thousand or five hundred and seventy three thousand plus um, clients, and they're making free trans union credit monitoring available for twelve months to allow the the potential victims of this uh, to keep an eye on their credit because of course this is this is potentially um, um, a serious privacy breach. Now, there has not been any indication that the cards have been used. Um, it may very well be that they're in a pool waiting to be sold. They haven't actually been put into play at this point. So, I mean, upon receiving a notification, if I were one of those 573,000 people, I'd call my credit card company and say, okay, we need, to ch- we need to kill this card and change my number and issue me a new card. So that you you avoid that. Although, in, in, at least in the case of credit cards, not so for debit cards, uh, you're indemnified against that. So, so that's good. And then um, in uh, just recent breaking news, it turns out that version nine of Bind, which as we know is the the major DNS server on the internet, it it's just news happening today on the 29th. It's been um, ISC, the, the, the author and publisher and maintainer of Bind, have said that there is a way to crash master servers, 
master DNS servers running bind version 9, there are fixes available, updates are available. So anybody who's responsible who has a a master, not a slave DNS server on the net want, may want to update to the latest one. Essentially, it involves an exploit that's been found in the so-called dynamic update message, uh, messages that the server can receive. Um, for example, in, in GRC's configuration, I have a master server, which, um, which is private, and I've got packet filters which prevent there from being any public access to it. So even though I'm using version 9, I'm safe. Um, of course, then, if, they're, if they're using bind... Level three, you, you know, your hosting service is using bind, then you're not safe. No, I am because, because, and they are using bind, but they're, or the, unpatched the, uh, bind, I should say. They're, no, they're, yeah, but they're running slave servers. That is, their servers are, are slaves of mine. So that periodically they, being a slave, uh, check in with my server. Uh, so they're not the canonical servers you are. Exactly. Mm. So they, 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 they periodically check in with me for that's any probably what we should do. Cause that's what happened to us yesterday. And it, it's very convenient because it means that when I, when I make a change, I'm able to push it to them instantly. I'm able to send them a, a dynamic update message and they immediately update themselves. And because so, you're not publicly visible, you're not hackable. Exactly. That's a good, we should probably implement that because I believe, you know, we are, uh, our, um, Domain name servers at SoftLayer were uh, brought down last uh, yesterday, I think, and really took us off the air. Not only, I mean, every all the servers were running. If you knew the IP address, you could get there. But if uh, if you didn't, the DNS didn't work, and that doesn't just doesn't mean you couldn't get to Twitter, my blog, or you couldn't get the podcast either. So iTunes got confused because iTunes right. can't see where the feeds are coming from. So that's something we have to address as well. This SoftLayer, by the way, this this affected a lot of sites. Yeah, well, everybody who's hosted by them. And Bear's telling me, our sysadmin is telling me that's that's part of what happened yesterday was this bind flaw. Ah, okay. Well, I need to tell our listeners about something else which is really disturbing. <clears throat> um, uh, this was reported recently in CNET News, and that is um, Buy.com and Orbitz and other um, commercial sites have been linked to what they're calling controversial marketers. And I would say it's even worse than that. Um, reading from the, from the CNET uh, re, uh, uh, report, which is probably the easiest thing for me to do, um, it says thousands of web shoppers have complained that mystery charges, unquote, are showing up on their credit card oh, statements boy. and have accused those who operate so-called web loyalty programs of duping them into signing up. As a result, the U.S. Senate Commerce Committee is investigating Virtue, V-E-R-T, or Vertrue, V-E-R-T-R-U-E, Web Loyalty, and Affilion, companies who make, quote, cash back and coupon offers to consumers and charge those who enroll in their loyalty programs. But here's what got me about this, Leo. This is what stopped me cold, was that when you're, when you're for example, at buy.com and you're moving through the purchasing process. At one point you get to an intercept page that says, you know, big $10 off coupon and they're asking for an email address. And that stops you from completing your purchase with buy.com. Many users 
just think, okay, well, what is this? And then they look at it and it's like, okay, then they'll like put in a scrap or a spare or a throwaway email account just to get on with the purchase. What they've done is to agree to this program. And in literally in the fine print, it says that, that, that they will be charged for this service. Now the user may think, oh, that's not a problem because I'm not giving them my credit card information. It turns out that this is a behind-the-scenes deal with companies like Buy.com that provide your your um, e-commerce credit card information to this third party without any additional permission. Oh. And in Buy.com... Oh. Yes. That's yes. my credit I, card. You mean they don't ask ahead of time? They don't say, do you mind if we share... Your credit card number with a third party? Down in the Buy.com privacy statement. I'm not buying anything from them anymore. I know. It says, we reserve the right to use or disclose your personally identifiable information for business reasons in whatever manner desired. But 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 credit card? Your credit? Yes. <laughs> it says, if you think that anyone who unwittingly signs up to one of these programs must be an e-commerce rookie and that it doesn't happen to someone as savvy as you take care that your overconfidence doesn't cost you. Josh Lowenson, a 26 year old CNET reporter and longtime web shopper this week found that a credit card he rarely uses was billed $12 in each of the past eight months by web loyalty. Last November, after almost completing a purchase at buy.com, Lowenson was presented with an advertisement that asked him for his email address. And they show they show us a sample of this on on the on the CNET page. Um, He couldn't quickly find a way to get past the page and said he remembers thinking he would type in one of his rarely used email addresses just so he could complete his transaction. Lowenson was confident he couldn't lose anything because the advertiser didn't have his credit card information. But Web Loyalty didn't need Lowenson to charge his credit card. Web Loyalty CEO Rick, Rick Fernandez said Buy.com for a fee enabled his company to charge Lowenson directly. This is appalling. It's uh, it's it's phenomenal. And, and so the, the, the next uh, subheading is Web Loyalty to Whom? A 10-minute Google search turns up thousands of stories similar to, similar to Lowenson's. Apparently, many consumers are unaware that for years now, e-tailers such as Buy.com, Orbitz, Fandango, and hundreds of others have given web loyalty programs, also known as post-transaction marketers, access to their customers' credit cards. Some online shoppers don't realize that when they enter their email addresses into these ads, they're opting into the programs and authorizing the charges. Unbelievable. Uh, and shocking. Jeff, Jeff Wizit, Buy.com exec, was quoted as saying, quote, We have a long-standing relationship with web loyalty because we think they provide value to our customers. Well, what's happening is web loyalty is paying buy.com behind the scenes for credit card information from people who purchase from buy.com. Wow. Wow. So I just wanted to. I want a list of all the uh, retailers, e-tailers doing this so that I can not use them. I know. 
I know. I wanted. I, I'm to stunned that they. Could, I could see. You know, when I hear personal information, I think email address. I don't think my credit card information. Yep. And so, so people are finding charges on their cards, monthly charges being made by, from companies they never directly gave the information to. And what are these charges for? What am I getting? Um, it's, it's it's some some sort of like coupon offers, and and then you start getting email spam. From, from from these people and and they charge uh, and, me for this yes so holy cow and they don't say they're going to charge you I mean, this seems like it's it's borderline illegal um i'll send you the link leo to the story uh, which you'll want to put in the uh twitter feed oh, and, and also i will i'm going to tell everybody about this one this is yeah. appalling yeah it's a long story with lots of information so this uh, is on cnet huh? pages on cnet thank you cnet for Bringing this up, I'm going to talk about it on the. In fact, let's get you on the radio show this weekend to talk about it. That's, That's a good idea because shocking, it's a huge, much, much too broad a brush. Oh, unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. In fact, try, try, try googling um, buy dot com comma orbits linked to controversial marketers. Jeez, Louise. See if it comes up. Now, I haven't used either of those in a while, but I, but I have to think that many others are doing this. I've used buy dot com in the past. Yeah, in the past I have. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Well, that's uh, kind of shocking. Yes. In fact, if you put into Google buy.com comma orbits linked to controversial yeah, no, I found markers, it. Yeah. which is the title of the story, it comes right up. Wow. That's a shocker. Thank you, Steve, for uh, bringing that one to our attention. <sighs> Orbits has some comments on here. It sounds like I'll have to look, scroll down and see. Greg Sandoval's good. He uh, he's a smart guy. So yeah, wow. Yeah. So that's our security news. Um, There's one more. I just want to warn you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this this just crossed the wire, uh, literally from Wired uh, News. And thanks, Virgil, for posting this in our chat room. Two noted security professionals. You know, this is this week is the Halloween of security because of Black Hat coming up, right? Yeah, uh, Black Hat and DEF CON. That's right actually after a good it. way of putting it. Yeah. The Halloween this, of security. This is when the, the pranks begin. Two noted security professionals were targeted this week by hackers who broke into their web pages, stole personal data, mm. and posted it online on the eve of the Black Hat Security Conference. Dan Kaminsky was one of them. Whoops. Kevin Mitnick, the other. Oh goodness. Uh, they they say the intruders say they were uh, hacked because they consider them to be posers who hype themselves and do little to increase security. Mm. Uh, I disagree, at least in the case of Kaminsky. I mean, he's been really, really uh, great most recently on these this this DNS hole. Uh, but I have to say, maybe he needs to look at locking his site down. Uh, holy cow. Anyway, uh, I just thought you might want to know that the security researchers are being targeted by Black Hat, uh, head of Black Hat, to kind of bring attention to, I guess. That is interesting indeed. Holy cow. Metnick says it's his web host. And I'm moving. <laughs> yeah. Jeez Louise. Um, I had a little bit of sci-fi news. While reading through the mailbag, I ran across a note from Scott in Glasgow, uh, Scotland, um, who wrote, he said, Hi, Steve. I'm a regular listener of Security Now. Love it. You and Leo are fab. <laughs> I, I really also like your sci-fi reviews and had this one to share with you. Torchwood, Children of Earth. Produced by the BBC as a five-part miniseries, a spin-off from the main TV series Torchwood. In my opinion, this five hour of sci five hours of sci-fi is the best production to come from the UK in the last twenty years. Take a look 
Hopefully, you will find yourself recommending it on the show. Keep up the good work. Scott, P.S., show aired in the U.K. on five consecutive nights starting on the 6th of July. Well, I could not agree with Scott more. I watched it last week uh, when it was airing on BBC America, and it was spectacular. Um, it's available um, already on DVD. Uh, mine's on the way to me. Um, I would say that if you're not a Torchwood fan, it's probably a little difficult to get into it. You know, but, I started watching like in the middle of the season, so I'm going to go back to the beginning. I hear yeah, it's very and good. I mean Torchwood is really fun. Yeah, also, yeah, uh, they had two seasons, both on available now on Blu-ray DVD, and Children of Earth is essentially a follow-up to the first two seasons of Torchwood. Um, I really would recommend Torchwood that, that you see the original series first to understand the backstory. But Children of Earth was it was really good. I mean, it was just it was really good sci-fi. Right. You know, I mean, right. a bad alien sort of sci-fi. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. can't wait neat. to see it. Yeah. And then I just wanted to mention for the record, I know nothing about this, but the pilot airing this Sunday on ABC of Defying Gravity is airing. It's um, I don't know again anything about the show, but a bunch of people are cooped up on a on a spaceship which is on an extended voyage from Earth to Venus, I think is where they're going. And so I don't know if it's a reality show or if it's sci-fi or what it is, but it looks like it's, you know, relating to extended space travel from point A to point B, you know, by by, you know, slow caravan style. No no <laughs> no warp speed. So uh I don't know what it is, but it's this Sunday evening on ABC in the U.S. So I just wanted to make sure people who might be interested knew about it. I mean, my TiVo will will be recording it, and I'll see if it's any good. It's always worth a try. And then a whole bunch of people that I ran across in our mailbag uh, commented on um, jet lag and on yes. my and and I and and my favorite one that caught my attention was a subject line fist with fists with your toes. Yes. As a travel stress reliever, um, Bryce uh, Shaskink, Shas, Shas, I'll take your word for Shinka. it. <laughs> okay. Bryce knows who he is. Um, he said, Dear Stephen Leo, the fists with your toes line is from Die Hard. Right. Our chat it's room a, knew that right away, by the a, way. Oh, okay. It's about yeah. relieving travel related stress, not jet lag. Uh, and then he goes on to 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 cite like literally verbatim from the movie. I don't know if he played it and transcribed it or if he knows it by heart. You could probably find it on the web. <laughs> and then the Richard Gere scene that I was thinking of, that where I was remember, I said I kind of have this picture of Richard Gere. That was from Pretty Woman, where where she's trying to get him to relax, and they go to a, for a walk in the park, and he takes his shoes and socks off, and just like to be not right. be so corporate and to right. walk around on the grass. And right. so those were his bare feet. So there you go. Just. In terms of errata, I thought that qualified. There you go. Um, do you want to get started with our Q&A here? I will. I do have a do quick have a spin little right? okay. spin right story yeah, yeah. Um, from Matthew in Fresno. Uh, and uh, the subject line again caught my eye. Spin right saved my marriage. Okay. <laughs> okay. He says, Dear Steve, <laughs> just wanted to let you know that spin right saved my marriage. My mother-in-law came to me. In a massive panic, her laptop died with a BSOD stating that a registry hive was corrupted. Oh. And, of course, she had no backup. 
she had lost all the pictures of our little girl that was just six weeks old. With my wife peering over my shoulder like a boss on a deadline, I researched the error and found the numerous pages Microsoft's knowledge base articles on possible solutions. Each solution required me to insert the XPCD and enter the recovery console and do a bunch of stuff to the files to the file system where the registry is located. Of course, she didn't have an XPCD, yeah. so I rummaged through all my CDs, desperately looking for an XPCD that would work. Then I remembered Spinrite and all those great stories you tell on security now. So I figured, hey, can't hurt to try. <laughs> and he says, FYI, Spinrite was purchased as a site license where I work. I hope it's okay to use it on my home computer. Eh, not technically, but I, I thank you for the testimonial, so we'll call it even. <laughs> um, I put the Spinrite CD in and let it run on level two. It took a little over 17 minutes to finish and did not show any errors on the display, so I figured it wasn't the hard drive. I ejected the CD and rebooted the computer just to see. During the boot process, Windows ran a check disk. Hmm, that was new. Then rebooted again. Then it finally booted into Windows with all our girls' pictures recovered. No registry problem. Hallelujah. He said, I was immediately surrounded by hugs from both my wife and my mother-in-law. Thank you for this great product, Matthew in Fresno. Wow. And, and of course, now, that's, back it up, Matthew. That's yeah, exactly. Or tell your mother-in-law, yeah. explain about backups to, yeah. to, to mommy dearest. Wow. Um, you know, and it's so often the case again, we, I've said before that Spinrite will apparently not do anything. That is, it can't report it because it's worked with the drive, recovered the problem, but the result was was no error left behind. It didn't, you know, it was able to perform the full correction, fix the problem, relocate the sector. Everything's good again. And so, uh, so sometimes Spinrite doesn't get the credit that it deserves because it's un- unable to show it because right. it, it fixes it. But uh, in this case, it did. Somebody want to know if Spinrite can be used on SCSI or SAS drives on servers. Absolutely. Okay. Yes. It's the USB that kind of hides a lot of the information, but, but SAS or SCSI is not so bad. Um, the, yes, exactly. I mean, it's, uh, SCSI provides a lot of information. You want the, you want the most intimate connection you can get. So if all you've got is a serial interface, well, that's the best it can do. But we've heard, we, we've had reports of it fixing network attached storage drives. So, you know, it'll, it'll work at it until it, it, uh, is able to read the sector or, or do whatever recovery it can. So often it's able to. Now, this is going to air on uh, Thursday, July 30th, but, you know, tomorrow is Sysadmin Appreciation Day. <laughs> so I want to appreciate all the sysadmins out there, and especially our sysadmins, uh, particularly Bear, who uh, was working so hard yesterday when the DNS uh, attacks occurred to get us back online, and, uh, and uh, Gordon and Colleen really is a sysadmin, too. So thanks to everybody who's working on our servers, and happy sysadmin day to all of you, because I know a lot of sysadmins listen. I bet most people who listen consider themselves their own system administrator, if not, if not for others. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So uh, real quickly, before we get to our questions, I just want to mention uh, one of our great sponsors. This is uh, useful for sysadmins and anybody who has to provide support for customers, for clients, I guess even family and friends. It's go to assist from, yes, those great folks at Citrix. We love Citrix. They do go to meeting. They do go to my PC. Go to assist is designed 
to provide support services. Now, there are, you know, you could use GoToMyPC. There are lots, there's lots of remote desktop solutions, but this is specially tuned for the IT professional to give you the kind of stuff you need, allow you to fix that problem without being physically present, even if the person you're helping is not present. I like that. You could start your ser- sessions with a one-click. I used it with my mom. It was, it was fantastic. Uh, send the person an, an email invite. That's uh, or I just pasted a link into IM. It, it works on PCs and Macs, by the way. Uh, you do get integrated live chat, so you can tell them what you're doing if they're there. Here's one thing that pros will like: you can have uh, uh, I think up to eight sessions at the same time going. So once you start and install another one, you can quickly move to the other session. You're not sitting there waiting, waiting, waiting for somebody who's doing a lot of uh, a lot of uh, support. This is great two way screen sharing. Uh, you get a, a an assay of what's running on the machine. This is unique to my knowledge and very useful. What operating system exactly, what version, what programs are running, what security software, always helpful for diagnosing problems. Um, you can even transfer files. If you've got a fix, you know, malware bytes or something on your system or registry hack, you can copy it over to their system and run it there. All data, of course, completely secure. This is security now. I would, I would... I would be remiss if I didn't mention 128-bit end-to-end SSL encryption. Of course, free 24-7 customer support. I can go on and on. I want you to try it for free. Here's the best way to do it. Just go to gotoassist.com slash security. G-O-T-O. Go to assist. A-S-S-I-S-T. I'm going to go there right now. Go to assist.com slash security, and you'll be able to try it free for 30 days. Absolutely free. Any An unlimited number of uh, support sessions. That's pretty cool. Go to assist.com. Support smarter. G-O-T-O, assist.com slash security. We thank them so much for their support of the Security Now program. All right, Steve, I have questions. Our listeners you. have questions and comments, and we're going to hear them now. Starting with a long question. You ready? Yep. Here we go. Fire Xware, writing from somewhere in the frozen north, Canada, wrote with the subject, Spin right and Security Now got me a job and a new hard drive. <laughs> Hello, I'm a Security Now fanatic. I started listening only a few months ago. I finally caught up. Wow. In a few months to listen to 207 episodes is pretty good. Impressive. I'm pleased to say I finally had a chance to use Spin right in a real data recovery situation. Being 16 years old... Oh, and, and uh, the only, I, I love that. And the only tech savvy person in the house, mom came to me with a laptop that wouldn't boot. I turned it on, saw the blue screen of death instantly. I knew what to do. I pulled out my copy of Spinrite, let it run on level two for an hour or so. And to my mother's amazement, the laptop booted like new. This impressed her so much. She wanted me to come into her office and help out with some other tech problems. Also to develop some software to her for her to make her life at work easier for her team. One of my tasks was to fix a laptop that would not connect to the network. I saw the network was secured using the terrible WEP protocol. This guy's been listening. I asked mom for the password, and well, let's just say I started laughing harder than ever when I discovered their WEP key is the first five digits of the office phone number. Oh, dear. (sighs) By the way, I was looking at what Dan Kaminsky's passwords were. His root password on his system was five characters, five Mm. alphabetic characters. Dan... Anyway, sometimes even the smartest people do that. So that makes me feel better because I do stupid things all the time. I was so shocked. I started talking about security with my mom, who is the most tech savvy person in the office. I discovered every user used the same password. And it happened to be the password is the one first on the list of many of the password cracking tools. 
They have lists, you know, bad passwords. Number one on the list. Using the knowledge I gained from listening to your show, I wrote up a quick proposal that described the threats and vulnerabilities the network is susceptible to and how to fix it. After the manager of the company had read this, he hired me to fix the security holes. 16-year-old kid! Today, I've earned enough money working that I'm able to afford a new terabyte hard drive, which I've been wanting for ages. I will definitely be spin writing it periodically. Thanks so much for your amazing piece of software and equally amazing source of security and insecurity knowledge. I also have a question. I love the concept of small is beautiful. Every line of code I write goes by that motto. I think that's good. Functional and elegant. I would love to learn how to program an assembly language. I understand the basic instructions and how the register and stacks work. However, I'm confused by the infinite amount of flavors of assembly language there are. I would like to know which flavor, <laughs> flavor, flavor, is your personal favorite for, for writing on Windows machines. And if you know of any resources to hone my skills in developing a GUI application in assembly. Once again, thank you very much. Wow, what a nice, nice letter. I just really like that. I, I love that there. he was 16 years old and yeah. out there get going and, yeah. and doing the work. Um, to answer his question, he referred to... He says, I love the concept of small is beautiful. Well, that's the name SIB.zip of a little zip package that I have on GRC off of my own personal page at GRC.com where I have all of the source for a simple, complete little Windows executable with all the source code. Um, written specifically as a little demo of here's a simple application written in Windows. Um, to answer his question, I'm using Microsoft's assembler, MASM, M-A-S-M, and there's a tremendously useful site, masm32.org, that I would recommend to, to uh, this listener and anyone who's interested in getting started. They've put together a complete, essentially turnkey package well, of all the files that you need that you can download and install that, that, that sets you up to write um, Windows applications in assembly language. So there's, really, so there's it, only one assembly language. What he's talking about is the assembler. Well, you, well, and actually the different assemblers do have differences in the assembly language. There's one machine language. So the, the, the actual machine language is fixed by the chip itself, but you could have different ways of mapping, you know, ASCII assembly language down to the binary of machine language. So, so for example, some assemblers use, for example, in an add instruction, you add two things where the second one is added to the first one, but you could also in assembly language express it where the first one is added to the second one. So, so assembly language can vary in terms of the way you express what you want the sense. chip to do, right. uh, but it ends up all always assembling. There's only down one machine the same language. binary yeah, code. Yeah, yeah, yep. Although you know, I mean, Intel has a specification for the for the assembler code. Most people adhere to. I mean, it all and pretty ma- much the same. And, and that is exactly what MASM is. If you look at Intel's PDFs, which are freely available and downloadable, the you know, their spec is what Microsoft right. Right. implemented for, for MASM. It's MASM32.com. Oh, .com. You're right. .com, not org. Actually, Bobcat, thank you for catching that. Good catch in our chat room. They're so quick. Chris in Australia wonders about the new attack on AES-256. Well, I haven't heard about this. I thought yep. AES was really secure. 
I'm sure you'll cover the new attack on AES that reduces the complexity for recovering an AES-256 key to 2 to the 119th. <laughs> okay. I'm, I'm a little feel a little bit reassured. And possibly less. See Bruce Schneier's blog. I've read that the attack does not affect AES-128. Why is that? And if this attack cannot be modified, cannot be modified and applied against 128, how does that mean? Does that mean that 128 with a complexity of 2 to the 128th is now more secure, I guess, than 256 since 256 has been reduced to 2 to the 119th? That makes sense. Is 128 the way to go? Well, okay, here's the problem. Um, there's been a lot of conversation um, over in the in, in the GRC news groups about the strength of AES. And for example, we ha- I already have a CryptoLink news group that's been very active where, you know, people have been suggesting things and discussing things. And, you know, I'm working toward getting ready to start coding that. And so people have said, well, gee, Steve, will CryptoLink support AES-256? My original answer was no, because there's just no need for it. 128 is so many bits long in key that, that, that I mean, we're just, I have to always remind people that the numbers, like even though 128 is only twice as big as 64, in terms of the number of permutations of keys, every single bit you add doubles. And when you double something 64 times, it, it's, it's not, it, you know, it, it, it belies the complexity that results. So, AES-128 is absolutely as safe as you could ever need. But there is, um, the U.S. government says that uh, 192 and 256 are, are, they've got like ratings of secrecy. I can't remember now what the designations are, but it's like top secret or super secret or secret. And, you know, just these are arbitrary. That's nonsense. But that's, you know the nature of some of the things the government does. So since the technology is there, it's like, okay, why not let CryptoLink run in 128, 192, and 256 if that's what people want. And so it's like, okay, fine. So, so 256 is incredibly strong. I mean, like ridiculously strong. It's there because we could do it. And essentially... The, the idea is, you know, we did a whole, a whole podcast on the way Rheindahl, the Rheindahl cipher works. Um, Schneier agrees, Bruce Schneier agrees that this in no way weakens the use of AES-256 for encryption. What this is, this attack is a subtle, purely theoretical weakening and then, you know, the word weakening, there's no way not to use the word, but it, it, unfortunately it's the best word we have, but it does not convey the truth. Bruce agrees that it is theoretical and it will probably always remain theoretical. It's way out in, in cipher land where the cryptographers operate. And this is called a related key attack where if somebody had access to the keys, you could make small changes to the keys, I'm changing only a few bits, and and map how the, the so-called key schedule changes. You may remember that in a symmetric cipher like AES, there's a, there's a, a key setup 
where you, you feed it a key, it runs the key through a bunch of pseudo-random tables, which are established by the definition of the cipher to create a, and sort of a, it's called, also called key expansion sometimes. You take a relatively small key, you run it through these pseudo-random tables, and it expands that to a bunch of keying material. And it's then you use the keying material for each round that you run the cipher through. And, and AES has a number of different rounds depending upon the length of the key. Um, some earlier attacks, so-called attacks, again, in quotes, were only, were only applicable with so-called reduced rounds, where you, where you, okay, you didn't really use AES because AES specifies how many rounds to use. You use the machinery of AES with a reduced number of rounds. And again, this is a way that the cryptographers operating out in crypto land have a sort of creeping towards an answer. It's like, okay, they're, they're just learning more about what this, what this cipher does, how, what its characteristics are, how it acts, how it operates. And so this related key attack says that there are, there have been other related key attacks which have been more limited in scope. This one is more general, and the idea is we can take a key, make some a few bits of change out of the 256 bits of the key and track how those changes propagate through the expansion of the key and learn something about it. And what we learn is that not as much changes as we were hoping. So the what you want in a so-called, you know, like in a theoretically perfect cipher is any changes in the bits of the key completely change the action of the cipher in a way that can't predict it, can't be predicted, can't be, you know, can't be penetrated. So so this is purely at this point, sort of a theoretical weakening such that it turns out that the the 256 bit length is not as strong in the presence of somebody manipulating the key. Okay, the only time that might be useful is when the cipher is being used as in a hash function where where the data that you're hashing, depending upon the hashing algorithm, might provide input to the keying input of the cipher. Remember that a cipher, if we view it as a black box, has a key, and then it's also got data. So the 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 data is the block width, or the block length of the cipher, and the key length varies. So it's it's only in the case where you have a use of the cipher where you might have control over the key or know what the key is that even then this represents any weakening. But in all normal uses for encryption, for example, in a VPN or in you know SSL use of AES, there what is always secret is the key and the no one monitoring the channel, no one trying to crack it, has access to the key. The key is specifically what you're keeping secret. So there's no ability, 
the, the, the protocol, as we've talked about SSL, for example, generates the key in a way that prevents anybody from having from 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 controlling it. The ends use pseudo random generators to create their pieces of the key and then they communicate in a way such that no one monitoring this is able to get the key, let alone control it or change a few bits of it or do anything with it. So this doesn't apply in any way to to normal symmetric use of the, of AES for encryption and decryption. It's only theoretically interesting in cases for really just for cryptographers. So this is like way out in in academic cryptography because the the word like weakening and attack are the way these guys talk in their academic papers it generated some headlines and bruce isn't worried good so that's the story with this aes attack good and that's why we ask steve these tough questions so he can explain it's okay it's gonna be all right now here's one about jet lag <laughs> this show covers a wide range of topics from sci-fi <laughs> to jet lag to and i'm vitamin not even d. gonna talk about vitamin d until next week Leo. okay good although i did take my second test this morning as i took my first test a week ago wednesday i have my results from the first one but i'm gonna wait till we have results from one week of me um laying out in the sun with a new technique well, I'm drinking somebody, the, the company, a company called Balance sent me some Balance water for travelers that has all these uh, uh, Australian flowers dissolved in it. Oh. She oak, gray spider, tall yellow top, croea, bush iris, and mulla mulla. So <laughs> I don't know if it's going to help. I'm still a little jet lagged. I'm, I'm still waking up early in the morning. Anyway, this is a John Hewan in San Francisco. He has a cure, he says, for jet lag. I heard the two of you, especially Leo, sometimes have trouble with jet lag. I'm going through a hellacious jet lag coming back from China. But every time I go, those long, the, you know, Australia was the same thing last year. Those 15 time zones just will kill you. Yeah, see, I don't move very far, so I'm not having that much problem that's, with jet lag. That's you, a long you're, way. You're doing big chunks of the globe. I used to do Toronto every month. That wasn't a problem. No, no. I'd be and a little I, tired. I, coming. I did it with you. We, we really yeah. didn't even notice. No. Though I have to say, always harder get recovering coming west than it, or going Going east is harder than coming west. In other words, uh, coming back from China was worse than going to China. Going to Europe is worse than coming back from Europe for me. He says, I wanted to mention a book that I've used that has helped eliminate jet lag no matter what direction I'm traveling in or how many time zones I've crossed. I've done up to 10. Evidently, it's based on a handbook that the military uses, and it primarily involves eating certain kinds of foods at certain times starting a few days before the flight. The book is called Overcoming Jet Lag by Charles F. Ret, E-H-R-E-T. You shouldn't have any problem finding it on Amazon or other booksellers. See the problem here? I want to see a double blind study. The problem is there's a huge, you know, mind component in this. Sure. So all of these cures, as long as you believe they're going to work, are going to work. Well, and you want them to work because you, you bought a book. And so it's like, oh, you want the book to be right. For what it's worth, we put overcoming jet lag into Amazon search and sure enough, you can find a bunch of used copies of this for $4 and some odd cents. It is available on Amazon for anyone who's curious. Um, but of course, yeah, if you spend all that time getting just the right foods in ahead of time, I'm sure that helps just because you've invested so much in it. I would like to know more. I want to do I have to. You do your vitamin D. I'm going to do my jet lag stuff. Okay. John Kennedy from Metairie, Louisiana, asks Steve to touch the bleeding edge. 
Yikes. Hi, Steve. I'm a longtime Spinrite customer, a Security Now listener on the Security Now netcast. I uh, often hear you comment that you do not use current software versions because they're unstable and unproven. Some examples come to mind. Your comments on sticking with XP and Firefox 3.5. Even though, actually, you didn't say 3.5. You said 3.0, I think. No, I mean, and, and he, he means not going to 3.5, even though 3.5.1 is available. Oh, all right. I think. You're using, just to be clear, XP and 3.0, right? Yes, and happily so. 3.0.12. As a computer consultant and software developer for the past 25 years, I appreciate, respect, and agree with your position. From a consultant's perspective, I do not like my clients using the latest versions of products or patches for the same reasons you mention. Patches. When he says patches, that worries me. However, as a consultant, I have a responsibility to use and test the new versions of software and patches to ensure their benefits and side effects, thus becoming the guinea pig. As I listen to your latest, I'm the guinea pig here, by the way. I use everything. I like it new. I like new shiny stuff. As I listen to your latest Security Now episode, a thought hit me. I wonder if Steve would consider breaking from his policy and providing review and analysis of version updates and patches. Of course, by breaking policy, I don't mean using those updates in your production environment. I was thinking more in terms of using a virtual or test machine solely for evaluating updates. I believe your perspective and the level of analysis you bring would be of tremendous benefit to your listeners. Right now, I believe most of the information that surfaces with each software update is from a journalistic perspective. It would be great to have technical information and review from a respected and trusted person such as yourself. I, you know, I always thought that's what journalism was supposed to do. I think what he means is the journalists tend to be rah-rah about this stuff now. Um... Please give this some thought and consideration. Thanks for your work on Security Now. Looking forward to your other works in progress. Comments? Well, if I didn't have a day job. <laughs> yeah. Who has time to do that? We're ta- Yes, we're talking about, I mean, I appreciate John's suggesting that maybe I would be a good person to do this. And I have done it inadvertently. For example, when I made the mistake of updating my Windows XP to Service Pack 3, and it hurt me, and I told everybody, ouch. Uh, be careful. I know I got hurt. Don't you get hurt? Um, but you know those are those are expensive and inadvertent things for me. I made the mistake of trusting a service pack, um, right. which you know obviously is like a set of patches, as, as John was talking about. And the problem is, um, these th- generally these things are tested before. Microsoft lets them go, for example, or Mozilla lets them go. As far as anyone knows, they're they're releasing something that's working. So it takes boundary conditions to find the problems. It takes a large number of people all pounding on it in different environments to find those situations where it may not work. For example, Service Pack 3 worked for many people, most people, you know, and other of my systems. Not, unfortunately, just my main one. And Microsoft's bugging me about it now all the time. You really shouldn't install Service Pack 3. It's like, uh, you know, I tried that. Didn't work for me. So I would, I, 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 conceptually, I love the idea, but there's just no practical way for me to run a production environment and a non-production environment because it's only by you know by using these things that you find the problems and b- by that point it's often too late so um especially when we're talking about security i don't want to run with something which is lowering my se- potentially lowering my security because i'm i'm proud of the fact that my my defensive walls are as high and thick as they are and that i'm able to get the work i need to get done done without you know things crawling in and not having experiences like 
uh, Dan, Dan Kaminsky. Kaminsky. Yeah, yeah, exactly. He says, if uh, you go out in the battlefield, you're going to get shot. <laughs> so, so Steve says, I'm not, I'm not fighting that battle. Uh, I understand that. What about though? I want to. Th- well, no, I, I'm. I've got my armor on, and someone says, "Yeah, but <laughs> you're uh, not going to take it you off." You want you to see if those bullets are pointing. Yeah, do they, or not. How do they work? Uh, but uh, but it does make me nervous that he says patches because, um, and I understand this is an issue because co- patches co- have hurt people. Yeah, but at the same time, don't you run a pretty big risk by not applying those patches? Yeah, I do. I do think there you 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 begin to tip the you know you get you reached a tipping point where it's like eh, it's probably better to patch and hold your breath. There's no perfect solution on this. Steve doesn't use JavaScript. I do. There you go. Andrew, I'm just living on the cutting edge. Andrew McKinnon. By the way, I, you know, uh, knock on wood, not been hacked yet. Andrew McKinnon in Brisbane, Australia, although I'm worried about my iPhone in about 24 hours. Yeah. Wonders about his iPhone's internet address. Hi, Stephen Leo. My question relates to the iPhone. Basically, until a month ago, my iPhone was reading my IP address as 144.233. However, on recent days, it's been 10.1. Am I right? (laughs) I think I know the answer to this. Am I right in assuming that my iPhone is now being proxied by my ISP, as this seems a private address from a router, much like I find in my home netcom? Funny thing is my iPhone only does this in certain areas, and it's always on cell networks. Oh, okay. I thought he was using Wi-Fi. He says, no, I'm not using Wi-Fi. If my ISP is proxying my traffic, what's the purpose of this and why do they only need to do it in certain areas? Well, that's interesting. Let me look at my iPhone IP address. What's going um, on there? Do you know? Yeah, it's I mean, it's nothing surprising. It's um in one case that 144.233 his his phone was given a public IP by from by the ISP. Whatever, why, yeah, exactly. By by his wh- wh- whatever ISP and region he happened to be it's, it's, in. In this case, his ISP is his wire wireless carrier, of course. Exactly, and yeah. in another case, uh, located somewhere differently, he had a ten dot one dot x dot x, you know, IP. Right. Um, I know that when I was use I, I uh, Verizon as my carrier, and I was using a wireless broadband card, and. In fact, one of the problems I had with OpenVPN that caused me some concern was that I think it might have been, in fact, when I was in Vancouver with you, Leo, I received there a 10.IP address that was the same network subnet as I was using at home. And so OpenVPN that uses a routing table in order to route packets was confused because it lo- it thought I was at home and oh. wasn't able to route the packets out the VPN to oh. my network at home. Huh. So, um, and that was another one of the things that I said, oh, I'd have a better solution for that. I'm going to write my own. Um, but all this is basically is, is an ISP who's got you behind NAT. There's, it's not necessarily a proxy, although it is also the case that some, some cellular systems will proxy, for example, web access and that their web proxy is designed to deal with the, the the presumably small screen of a telephone. It may rescale images down, right. so it's minimizing its bandwidth. It's not sending you a big, huge PNG file that then gets scaled in the phone. That's dumb. Instead, it's scaling it on a high-speed, high-performance server down to a small physical size, then sends a much smaller file down to your phone. So there you are, you are seeing web proxying for the benefit of an improved web surfing experience. 
But in, in, in this case, it looks like in one case you were behind Nat and the other case you weren't. Yeah, I don't think the iPhone uh, browser Safari does that web proxying. We know Opera does and a few other browsers. Yep, and I know that I have the option um, on a trio to do that or not. To like to right. they call it like web extra web acceleration feature or right. some something right, like that. Right. But uh, it's possible that your internet service provider, your wireless provider, does something like that. I don't, I, that's an interesting question. Why would it change from place to place? Well, I think it's just different carrier setup um, in one location right. or another. So right. it's just, you know, it's like, okay. I mean, it really doesn't matter technically right. what your IP address is. For example, you never really paid attention to it, Leo, and you're about as techie as weak as, you know, a, a, a user as there is. So, you know, it's just my phone works. It's got an IP. The traffic is coming back to me. Um, you know, Andrew was saying, hey, you know, why is it different? What does that mean? And so, I mean, technically, it means they're just different setups for the way the traffic gets back to you. One is back through a NAT where, you know, certainly that 10.1, as, as, as we know, the 10.1.something.something, that, that address cannot go out on the public Internet because 10 is one of the non-routable networks like 192.168 is a non-routable network. There's no if a packets were sent out on the net that were destined for 10, they would nothing would, or, 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 or that came from 10, there's no way that the packets would ever get back to you because, you know, 10 is a reserved private IP space. So as your phones, as your phone's packets, which are coming from 10.1, go to your ISP, they are then natted back to some public IP that allows them to go out on the net come back to that same point and then get turned back into 10 dot as they cross through the wireless link back to your phone. Just as a router does. It's exactly a, it's, like, it's a, it's a router. exactly. Yeah. Yes. Uh, and, we, and we know, for example, there are even some cable providers that have their customers behind NAT. So even, even cable modems sometimes get a private IP because the ISP presumably is running short of IP space and has natted all of their clients, oh, all yeah. of their customers. Question six, Kevin Gadiani from Overland Park, Kansas, worries about the number of HTML, <laughs> worries about the <laughs> number of HTML and uh, errors and warnings on the Security Now page of GRC. Steve, when he runs it through the W3C validator, he gets thirteen thousand eight hundred fifty-three errors and twenty-four warnings. I thought you would have fixed yours because you're like that, but even MSN.com validates. I'm extremely surprised to see this. And hope you'll fix the errors over time. I've never, <laughs> I've never personally seen so many errors in my life. I run a site, Bad Markup, which I used to talk about this stuff. And when I get some time this year, sometime in October, I'll be going around looking for this stuff. Please don't let me have to discuss GRC on the site. I think you should discuss GRC, Keith, uh, Kevin. Why Absolutely. are you getting all those errors? Absolutely. Well, you know, this comes up from time to time. Uh, we'll see postings in the news group. Somebody will have, have, have run a page just because they had spare time, I guess, through the, WC, the, the, the W3C validator, and it just explodes. I mean, somewhere <laughs> there's smoke coming out of a validator, you know, in Sweden or Stockholm or somewhere. I've never seen anything like it. 13,853 errors. Um my pages are designed to work. And for example, you know, the, the um, there's all kinds of tricks 
that is necessary to play in order to make things work on old and new browsers. The the GRC's script-free menuing system, which was developed painfully over the course of many months with a huge bunch of testers in our news group, manages to work beautifully on every web browser. But it's a validation nightmare because of all the tricks I had to play in order to work around differences between web browsers. If web browsers all worked correctly, then, yeah, one batch of HTML would work everywhere. My stuff is designed not to validate, but instead huh, to work. <laughs> well, and isn't I mean, in theory, the idea of validation is, to, is that, that it would uh, work on all platforms that were compliant. So is yeah, it the, the platforms aren't compliant or that? It, it, yes, it's, it's, it's that there are subtle differences, for example, in the way uh, Safari handles CSS from IE. And so you can give the same code to two browsers and it will look different. And when you're trying to design something as tight as the menuing system where where spacing and positioning and I mean it really has to be geometrically perfect it turns out you discover how non-standard yeah. browsers are from from one to the next i mean remember that ie8 even has a list of sites where it falls back to IE7 right. because in IE8 they're more standards compliant than they were in IE7, which breaks sites which were deliberately tuned to work under IE7. So, you know, whose fault is that? Right. I mean, I have, if, if someone does, you know, hold their breath and pinch their nose and stick the security now page through the W3C validator and actually look at the errors, they'll find they're not big things. What are they're, they? They're little things. Like I put quotes around numbers um, in some cases where they're not supposed to be. Or I use old margin um, callouts on image tags, which used to be supported but aren't anymore. That's what I thought it probably was, is that you're using HTML 1.1, for instance. You're using an old HTML. Yeah, I, I'm, yeah. I'm code, I code my stuff by hand rather than have some big prophylactic you know, web authoring thing so that my code just looks like some horror. If you've looked at some of these pages, you can't read them. Right. Mine is all legible because I wrote it in Notepad. Right. But, you know, I did it very carefully and it works. doesn't validate worth beans, but, you know, it runs on all browsers. You might be able to, I don't know. Leo, and you, you know what? You don't care. I don't care. <laughs> that's the bottom line. So many more you might be able to put in things your, things in your prologue code something that will tell the validator, oh, no, this is a, a valid 1-1 one, one If I just told it to buzz off. Oh, no, you can't do that either, Leo. That breaks other things. <laughs> Moving along, question seven, Mike V in Greeley, Colorado. He really wants security. Note, I am totally okay with you reading this on the show, he says. Hey, Steve, I'm only 14. I love it, all the kids that listen. Yep. But I love your podcast, and every episode's a journey into the complex world of security. I'll second that emotion. I wish I could say that I've listened to every one of your shows, but I just started tuning in in March. Well, come on, don't be a slacker, Mike. You could just listen to a couple of hundred episodes all at once. I have a system for mobile USB security. I wanted to make sure it was totally safe. I've encrypted all my files on my USB drive with TrueCrypt with a password from your perfect password system. Sounds good so far. 
Yep. The password for that is stored in a text file on a drive, actually on the same drive, which I encrypted with 7-Zip, which is what you were recommending, right? Yep. Oh, no, you recommended the uh, PKWare zip program. Uh, right, Secure Zip. Secure Zip. The password for that zip file is another perfect password, which is stored in a text file on a separate thumb drive I always carry with me. This is the problem with the perfect passwords. They're not memorable. So you have so you kind of have to write them down or store them somewhere. So he's trying to get around this problem. That text file is in a zip with a password that I've memorized. So tell me, he says, am I going too far with this encryption? I don't hang around computer hacker conventions too much. Too much. But I am worried about people getting to my passwords through Firefox Portable and Google Chrome Portable. Do you think this is a viable method or is there a better way to make the USB drive 100% secure? Thanks for the show. Best wishes for the future, Mike V. Hmm, it seems like it's inconvenient. I'll say that much. Well, um, and actually, it isn't that secure. It sounds good because he's got a whole bunch of the perfect password gobbledygook that he's he's in sort of encrypted in a chain. But the problem is, it's a chain. And at this point, 80,000 listeners know what that chain is. Right. The end of the chain <laughs> is a simple password that he memorized. So really, that defeats everything else. He should just it, use that simple password for TrueCrypt. Well, any one of our listeners... Well, no, you don't want to use a simple password for TrueCrypt because that that's one. the vulnerability of right. TrueCrypt. Is it tr- the only vulnerability is brute force. Right. And so if he, if he has a simple password for TrueCrypt, then it could be brute forced. The problem is 80,000 people now know what his protocol is. So there was some obscurity there until uh, we read this on the show, which he's totally okay with. That's called, uh, by the way, security through obscurity. And maybe he's obfuscated it. Maybe he doesn't really do it that way or he well, left out a step. Or so something. the problem, though, is that that the end of this chain. I mean, the, the reason I like this question is that it's a, it's a perfect model for something that seems secure, but when you think about attacking it, it says, whoops, wait a minute. The, the end of that is a, is a memorable, memorizable, simple password. If So everyone knows the protocol now who's listening to the show. So all any of us would have to do is, is try to guess the password for they'd that They'd have to have physical zip- access to the other key, too. Excuse me? He, they, they, it's on a separate thumb drive, so they'd have to have some physical access as well. Right, right. Yeah. So, so we, we, but presumably, now that we know that, there's no protection for any of his so-called protocol right. that, that, that he has. So we, we guess the simple password to unzip that file. That gives us the password for the 7-zip, which we use to unzip the password for the TrueCrypt, and then we have the access to the USB drive. So, so he's really trying to make it obscure by complexity and obscurity as opposed to genuine secure security. Correct. And and I would argue that... Well, what do you want him to do? Memorize a perfect paper password? Or take, take, a, take the perfect paper password and then customize it in use. So, for example, um, cut and paste it into TrueCrypt, and then make some changes to it that only he knows. So he's he's essentially ah. he's, he's essentially done a multi-factor authentication by by starting with the root of a perfect paper of, of of a perfect password. He's got something 
full of debris that cannot be brute forced. But by then making some changes, putting a couple extra characters in in places that he memorizes, which is easy to do, you've you've all you, you you've you've broken it so that you just can't use the perfect password. You have to use the perfect password plus, plus. some changes that only he knows. Oh, that's clever. And that's extremely secure. That's the problem, and this is the whole issue with secure passwords. The more secure they are, the harder they are to remember. Yeah, exactly. And we have a, an interesting suggestion about that oh, coming good. up. Well, let's get to it. I mean, sometime. Uh, this is another 16-year-old. Question 8. Scott in upstate New York makes a brilliant observation about Firefox privacy. I'm 16 years old, and I've been listening to Security Now since episode 25. Your show has taught me everything I could ever want to know about security. And how my computer and the internet works to boot. Keep up the great work. Anyway, a few episodes ago, you discussed how Firefox remembers how you, you know, zoomed the page of a website you visited. I had noticed this in the past, but I didn't know it was a feature. The question is, could this be a security or privacy concern? Firefox retains the zoom setting even after you've cleared private data. Therefore, it must be saving the websites you've zoomed somewhere... This cache denies you the plausible deniability and privacy provided by clearing host histories, cookies, etc. I poked around about colon config, but this sheds no light on my question. So, is it a security privacy concern, or am I blowing it out of proportion? By the way, no spin right yet. My parents won't buy it till something fails. But you can guess what I'm going to do with my first paycheck. Well, that's an well, interesting point. That's an interesting point. It's brilliant. I yeah. mean, that's why I said I think this is a brilliant observation. So, Scott has noted that... That if you change the zoom level on a website, Firefox remembers it. We talked about that as a feature. He noted that that isn't forgotten when you clear your personal data. And arguably, it should be because you, you lose, as he said, plausible deniability about never having been to the site before. So it's a per page setting. It's not global. It's for every page you visit. There's a different setting. It's a per site setting. Okay. Yeah, per per website or maybe per page. I think it's per domain. Okay, I would imagine that's what Firefox would. would that, that, that's in, the way. In any event, would, it's somehow somewhere storing the name of a domain and your and your Zoom setting. Yes, there there was a really interesting privacy hack that went around maybe about a year ago, where where there was a way that JavaScript could test links to see whether you had visited them or not. Remember how. How in, in, on many browsers, a link that you have visited will be a different color. Right. And there was a way to get JavaScript huh. just by itself to, like, check the color of a link that it, its, it itself created sort of off screen. And that allowed it to determine whether you had ever been to a given page. Wow. So it was a really interesting privacy yeah. hack. Yeah. And, and this, is, this is sort of similar to that. So I just wanted to give Scott a tip of the hat. I think that's, that's, a, that's I mean, he's thinking like... A security and privacy person. Now, we don't know where uh, this information is stored or how accessible it is. I haven't pursued it. I just love the question. Yeah, and, he, you know, yeah. I, I, I assume that, that, you know, given the way this is written, looks like Scott knows what he's doing. He talked about clearing the private data and realizing that Firefox remembered Zoom settings, which said, oh, someone's been to this page before and, and changed the Zoom. Yeah, they should clear that as well, shouldn't they? Yeah, they should. Yeah. Patty Clark on an early Compu, uh, and who was oh my goodness an early CompuServe employee in Knoxville, Tennessee, 
remembers with us. We were talking about our CompuServe email addresses. I was listening to uh, episode 205 on LimpleZiv when my ears perked up on the CompuServe uh, segment. I spent most I spent most of the 1980s as an employee of CompuServe. You were correct when mentioning that CompuServe was a time-sharing company and H&R Block was their parent. The computers behind the consumer information service were DEC system 10s and 20s. That's what they call CompuServe was called CIS. Right. I had the pleasure of working with one of the system programmers who had pulled together a handful of games and created the forum, precursor to a bulletin boards and chat rooms software. The idea was indeed to do something with all of that computing power that was sitting mostly idle during the evening hours. It surprised management when it took off and ultimately became what the company will be known for in in history. AOL AOL bought CompuServe from H&R Block some time back. Back then, modems started as 300-baud acoustic couplers. That's what I used to log on to CompuServe when I first started doing it. Uh, Then later, 1,200, 2,400-baud modems were comparatively fast. Everything was text-based, yep. We were on the bleeding edge when we brought email to larger corporations and the federal government. Sorry, my reminiscence hat has slipped on. Anyway, I enjoyed your program and I learned something new each week. Thank you, Patty Clark. 75106,3139. I just thought that was neat. And, yeah. you know, I don't know what it is, but the the nostalgia factor for me, like remembering taking the, the Series 500 phone. That, that was the number of the, of the standard blocky telephone that we had at the time. And, you know, pushing it down into the acoustic yes. couplers. They had little suction, little kind of rubber things that you would, so it sealed its noise out. Yep. Wow. And yep. at 300 bits per second was the fastest that could go, that system could go. Yeah, I mean, there you're, it, that was 30 characters per second. And you could just sort of see it, you know, painting the line, it, you know, the way they still do in like kind of hokey B-grade <laughs> sci-fi movies yeah. where the text comes out slowly. So That's how I played. Uh, Very cool. Colossal Cave, Crowther and Words Adventure. Uh, they had a uh, an extended Colossal Cave that I played quite a bit, many, many hours on. Yeah. 30 characters a second. David Cox in Colorado Springs reports security now almost killed him. Hi, Steve. I began listening to security now shortly after you and Leo began with episode one while I was stationed in Cornwall, England with the U.S. Navy. I drove one of those tiny smart cars back then. You know, the poor man's Mercedes. (laughs) It was called Smart for Two. And they are slowly growing in popularity now here in the States. Actually, I got, uh, you know, I had reserved one and it came and I said, no, I'm not going to buy it. It seemed a little dangerous. Fantastic gas mileage, easy parking anywhere. No, I haven't totally lost it. There is actually a point to this ramble. So I'm driving to work early one morning on those very small, windy English roads, listening to the latest Security Now episode. It was dark, rainy, foggy, and I was completely lost in the show. Suddenly, less than 30 feet in front of me, a big lorry, a.k.a. a big-ass truck, went flying past me from right to left. I have been driving this road for several years already, and I knew my turn was up there. But as I said, at that time, I wasn't in England driving to work. I was sitting somewhere in Irvine at a Starbucks with my venti caramel macchiato, totally engrossed in what Stephen Leo had to say about information system security. By the way, I was the information assurance manager for my duty station at the time. What a what a nice, uh, nice, nice story. Isn't that so, neat? Yeah. so back on this wet road... In dark fog, I suddenly snapped to reality, yanked the steering wheel counterclockwise as hard as I could, and miraculously found myself directly behind the truck that had woken me up from security school. 
I don't know how the car didn't flip over or how I avoided the oncoming traffic or why my driving instincts were so damn good that one early morning. All I know is I live to listen to many more of your shows, whoo, which incidentally uh, have since gotten me through the diagnoses of leukemia, a bone marrow transplant, and now lung disease and possible double, double lung transplant. Oh, David, I'm sorry. Your shows have kept me sane and given me something fun and informative to look forward to each week. I, for one, applaud you for not missing a single episode. I'm also a loyal Spinrite owner and user. It has saved my bacon a couple of times, although it didn't help Dad on his RAID-configured system. I'm guessing operator error. Well, keep up the great work, and I'm really, really looking forward to CryptoLink. As a side note, what do you know about DNSSEC? It appears to be DNS with authentication added for increased security. Maybe a short mention, or is there enough for a dedicated episode in the future? Well, we um, first of all, I just wanted to thank David for a story. We get, you know... Just such great oh, I love mail it. in the mailbag from it. our from our listeners that it's just yeah. I wanted to share some of these sometimes. Um, we did do a an episode on DNSSEC. It wasn't only dedicated to its just that one topic. It was something about Google. It was like it was like two topics in one show. Um, it's around episode one sixty one. Um, I, I did, you could I search went, it, and I'm sure you could find it. Search yes, I went to the Security Now page. We have a search yeah. box in the upper right put in DNSSEC, there's two pages worth of hits. One of them is me talking about the, you know, when, when Leo asks me, well, so what are we going to talk about next week? And that's when I, I talk about, I use DNSSEC and Elaine transcribed the acronym. So it's around there. It's Google something and DNS security is the topic, is, oh, is, is the all formal right. title of, of the podcast. And so uh, by all means, check it out because DNSSEC is coming. Yes. Thank goodness. Not soon enough. And that's that's thanks to Dan Kaminsky, by the way. Robert Altman in Los Angeles. Oh, no, I'm sorry. I was thinking of the director. It's Robert Antman <laughs> in Los Angeles has a thought about perfect pass phrases. Dear Steve, thanks for providing the perfect password service on your website. This password generated, by the way, secure. It's GRC.com slash passwords. Folks, grc.com slash passwords. This password generator is perfect for many applications, such as generating a pseudo random WPA password. That's a really good use for it for your Wi-Fi. But it's not so perfect in other applications, such as generating a pseudo random passphrase for typing into TrueCrypt, because, as we said, it's almost impossible, at least for me, to memorize this long string of random gibberish. It's especially difficult if you plan on changing your passphrase periodically. As example, if I wanted a pseudo-random passphrase that provided 128 bits of entropy, and I restricted the character set to alphanumeric characters only, A through Z, upper and lower case, and 0 through 9, the passphrase would have to be 22 characters long. And he, he does the math. 128 divided by log 2 times 26 plus 26 plus 10 equals 21.4. So here's an example. You, you, I'm not going to read it. It's Trust me. 22 characters of gibberish. Yes. I claim it's much easier to remember a passphrase consisting of random words, random English words in my case. Would you consider coding a perfect passphrase generator for your website? Actually, you know, a lot of operating systems, I know Macintosh does this for you. Um, there are a lot of programs that will do this for you. At Macintosh, you can ask it for a memorable password, and it'll give you kind of random language words with punctuation and stuff stuck in there. Right. Um, anyway, he says the second edition of the Oxford English Dictionary contains entries for 100, as you, as you know, Steve has this over his right shoulder, left shoulder, 
right shoulder. <laughs> so he knows this. 171,476 words. If you could obtain a list of the most common 65,536 English words, that's to the 16th, you could then take 16-bit chunks of your pseudom random number generator, use it as an index into the word list. Oh, that's a good idea. Display that word and repeat the process to produce the random passphrase. For example, to provide a random passphrase with 128 bits of entropy, you'd only need eight words. That's 128 divided by 16. Like, say, decompose ironic humid fizzle muslin purchase guacamole mazel tov. There isn't, there, isn't that easy to memorize? No. (laughs) (laughs) I made that list by flipping open a dictionary and pointing at words at random. There are some who would claim the use of a passphrase consisting of ordinary words is susceptible to a dictionary attack. But that is not necessarily true, provided the words are chosen at random and you choose enough of them. A random list of words is every bit as secure as a random string of characters. Well, he's exactly right. I love the fact that it was, you know, you might say it was susceptible to a dictionary attack because, of course, that's where you got the words. Right. was from a dictionary. Um, However, (laughs) you'd have to do a lot of dictionary attacks. I want to, again, I I like this because he's completely right. I mean, and... um, his phrase, decompose, ironic, humid, fizzle, Muslim, purchase, guacamole, mazel tov. Um, okay, that's 128 bits of entropy. Uh, given that the words, you, you, the, given that you start with 128-bit, high-quality, pseudo-random ch- chunk of bits, you, you take them 16 bits at a time, use the 16 bits to select one word out of 64K words, you're going to get something that is absolutely strong. It It also unfortunately, is a lot longer than than a, a passphrase of gibberish because you're now using a word instead of 16 bits. And as we know, 16 bits is two bytes. Well, that's not two characters because characters don't occupy the whole 256 uh, size alphabet, but it's maybe three characters or four characters. So you end up with something longer at the exp- I mean, at the, well, you end up with something longer and more may- memorable. Maybe more memorable, but uh, not you a know, lot more memorable. <laughs> I guess it's yeah, it's more more memorable. I would say that uh, again, sig- uh, given that you were gonna, if you're gonna write something down, write down some gibberish, and don't write down your personal modification. That this notion of making a a, a modification to gibberish is very powerful because you get both complete protection from dictionary attack and somebody looking at it has no idea how to turn it into your actual password. So you you can, and, and not even any idea how to guess how to turn it into your actual password. That is what customizations you make to it. That's very simple for you to remember, yet Nobody can glance at this 22 characters of gobbledygook and have any chance of of memorizing it. Right. So in some senses, it's stronger. Right. What can I ask you? You may not want to reveal this, but what do you, you know, you have to come up with passwords. How do you do this? You're not using those 64 byte crazy strings, are you? Um, I often do. I, I like I websites use, and I stuff. I my own perfect passwords for all kinds of things. And then I and I record. What them about in a something text you need file. to remember easily? You don't you don't have anything like that, huh? Yeah. Then then I record them in a text file, which I protect. Yeah, and then I have other algorithms that I use. I'll I've got different ways of assembling things. You know, so we 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 did for anyone who's interested who's joined the podcast late. 
some of the very first episodes of the podcast back number, you know, one, two, three, four, we did a, a series on passwords that a lot of people really liked. Listen and to so that again. Yeah, that's really good. And just really how to generate commend. a good password. Yeah. Yes, I would really commend people to to go check that out. That, that, that required. Was the, where we got our roots, Leo, where we began. Yeah. Required listening might yep. be worth. Well, there's no point in redoing it. People can just go back and listen it's to it. It's there. Yep. Yeah. Last question. Are you ready? Jeff, hiding out somewhere in the U.S., doesn't want to blink. RFID and credit cards. Should I run and not walk away? Steve, my Chase credit card was uh, approaching its expiration date. I received the new card in the mail. My new card came with a feature called Blink, a.k.a. an RFID chip. Now, the average person thinks that waving a card in front of a terminal instead of swiping is the neatest thing since sliced bread. But as an avid security now listener, I'm not so sure about that. How much am I at risk? Should I wrap my card in foil or request a replacement without the RFID chip? I don't mind having this Blink feature as long as I'm not at risk of losing everything in the blink of an eye. Good point, Jeff. What do you think about this? I think it's the worst idea I have ever heard of. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it is, you know, Visa has been doing this for a while. They've got their, their little terminal where they've got some... I don't remember now what their what their marketing jargon is for it, but the idea is you just you know bring your card near the reader. Right. The problem is this RFID is a standard, and you you're able to send a magnetic pulse to the card, uh, a little radio frequency burst, which uh, engages a a wire wound antenna, powers up the chip, and then it modulates. It uses that the incoming power to modulate. Um, the impedance of this loop, which you, which the transmitter is able to sense. Unfortunately, the, it, this is a standard, and so potentially any other any other transmitter is able to pull your card while it's in your wallet in your back pocket. I mean, I just can't imagine anything more ridiculously insecure than this. It's phenomenal to me. That this is something which has been allowed to happen. And I I mean, if we keep doing the podcast long enough, Leo, we are going to be talking about breaches of security from RFID credit cards. Oh, yeah, definitely. What I would recommend Jeff do is stick it in the microwave for about five seconds. <laughs> you won't be that able to will, wave you know, it anymore. But <laughs> nuke it. Yeah. That will nuke the RFID chip. It won't hurt the mag stripe because that's oxide, which is not a um, a conductor. And uh, you'll have an, an RFID that no longer blinks at you or anybody else, yet you'll still be able to use it and swipe it. Uh, it's just crazy. You I know, just, U.S. passports also have these RFIDs in them. Um, for what it's worth, Think Geek, one of our favorite sites, uh, has a bunch of fun RFID things. You if can you get a little wallet protector and so Yes, forth, if you yeah. go, and even a passport protector. Right. Now, the, the good news is the passports were designed so that their covers... Are, are will block the RF information so that a closed passport, as I understand it, if if it's what I'm thinking of, a closed passport will not allow you That's to correct. access its content. You right. have to open the passport in order to then have access to the RFID chip inside. Um, Think Geek is is www.thinkgeek.com. If you just put in their search box in the upper right, RFID. You get a page of fun stuff. The first one 
is an is an interesting little kit. I have two of them. I just not had any time to build them and, and play with them. It's an RFID experimentation kit, ninety nine dollars, um, that has a a an interface board with a USB uh, interface to a PC that allows you and a whole bunch of different shape little funky RFID things. I mean, even something you could implant in your arm if you you know were so, were so inclined, um, and different shape RFID tags. They all work with this because the RFID standard has been established, um, and it would be one way to, like, literally, you could read out the RFID information in your credit card using this little experimentation kit, and that would be also a way of verifying that five seconds in the microwave was enough to kill it. I was uh, one of the people on the uh, cruise with me as a security researcher, uh, Shaquille, and uh, he had an, uh, a passport uh, wallet to you know shield his rfid and uh, and um, actually when it set off the machine because it's got metal in it and uh, we were talking about it. he said one of the reasons i i wear this is and you can find this on youtube uh, some re- security researchers demonstrated that it's possible to read these rfids in the passports from a distance and stupidly the state department has put it put in an identifier that says u.s citizen in it oh. so uh the, the 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 video that you'll see on youtube is a bunch of people walking by a trash can and uh, the trash can explodes when a u.s citizen walks by uh not a difficult thing to do so shaquille as soon as he saw that said i think i'm gonna get a uh, passport holder here um yeah this is uh this is something uh kind of uh Incredible. And for what it's worth, the other things that on the Think Geek page are various types of shields. There's a wallet shield, yep. a passport shield, credit card shield, a bunch of different shields. I mean, it's just completely legal not- to do that, by the way. You, you're still handing over the passport for them to read, uh, you know, for customs to, and immigration people to read. And, uh, you know, they can open it up. Sure. But you don't have to be visible to the rest of the world. No. And again, that's the problem. It's not that it's not that it's not the transaction that you intend it's the transaction right. that you don't intend. Right. And it is definitely possible to 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 aim a focused radio beam at somebody and pick up the impedance change that the RFID chip is inducing at a distance. So, I mean, this is not rocket science. This is simple to do. It's just nuts that, th- that, that this is something that... that People are thinking, oh, great. Now I don't have to swipe my card anymore. I can just, you know, <laughs> Neither does walk, the crook. Past the, just credit walk cards. past the teller. Credit cards, though, are inherently insecure. I mean, you hand it to a waiter and he wanders off with it for 10 minutes. I mean, yeah. the, the, the whole idea of a credit that's, card is not so secure. That's a very good point, too. I mean, people, you know, come on. We're giving on the it- other hand, you know you're handing it to him. You're, in, you're still in the physical world and you're able to assess this, the right. security. There are certainly people you would not hand your credit card to. Like, Vertrue. Um, Dale Poco has found the, the uh, location in the Firefox profile folder of the, um, uh, the zoom settings per page oh, cool. zoom settings. It's in a, uh, SQL database. Uh, so it is in the profile folder and, uh, you just have to find uh, a file called places.sqlite. And that's, it's a standard readable SQLite file that contains all the places you've been. ha. <laughs> Isn't that nice? Isn't that nice? <laughs> okay. Well, now we know. Steve, a great episode. Lots of information. Uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to answer these questions. We're going to do more questions next week, right? Yes. That will be the final episode of the fourth year of the podcast. Another Q&A next week, and then we'll plow into our fifth year. Fifth year. Amazing. And uh, I will have some news about 
Vitamin D, I'm going to go take my clothes off now, Leah. <laughs> okay, okay, we'll turn the cameras off. You can find G- Steve <laughs> at grc.com. That's his website, grc.com slash passwords for the passwords. You'll also find the Security Now page there with 16 kilobit versions of the show for easy download. Those of you who don't have the bandwidth or the caps are getting in the way. Uh, also, transcripts, great way to search and read. Uh, what Steve's talking about, read along with the transcripts and all that great software that Steve does, much of it for free. And uh, his bread and butter, of course, his day job, Spinrite, the world's best hard drive maintenance utility. It's a must have if you've got a hard drive. It it's, works. It works. Steve, we'll talk to you next week. Thanks, Leo. Security now.